Okay. All right. Here we are ready to talk with Carl Gottlieb, who is a data protection officer, uh, outsourced data protection officer and data privacy consultant based in Europe. He's a EU privacy law expert. He lives in the rural area of the UK. He's got a great sense of humor. He's going to be fun to talk to. And uh, I'm really excited about it. He's super smart, man. And you know, what I, what I like about him is, uh, Obviously, he's a deep thinker on, on particularly GDPR, but European privacy policy. Um, but he's pretty practical, man. Like, you know, he's not like esoteric and, you know, like lost in the articles of GDPR. Like, he's very kind of like, oh, let's zoom out and try to get to the principle of things. It's helpful for me anyway. He's super practical. He's got a bunch of U.S. clients. One of them is Duolingo, the language training um, app and you know he he gets U.S. clients by advising them on practical aspects of privacy and product you know and how to develop product and privacy by design and um, if he doesn't you know I think that's that's one of the things we talk about is sort of the difference between EU sensibilities and U.S. sensibilities around data and things like that and he can't advise a U.S. company I think unless he's got a little bit of sort of the U.S. Exactly. <laughs> practicality going on yeah. yeah how do you know how do you know him how do you guys meet i don't know the story uh i think i just i think we just started um going back and forth on twitter uh about stuff he was like in a lot of the same conversations i was when we started conversing um back channel just asking each other questions about stuff okay all right here we are data protection breakfast club with our guest carl gottlieb the GDPR guy. Um, tell us where you're based, Carl, so we know where we're talking to you. Uh, so I'm in the UK, in pretty much the north of the UK, where we're uh, thriving with our COVID numbers right now. So it's, uh, yeah, we're fully in the second wave and uh, yeah, hot times going on over here. I, I was wondering what you meant by thriving. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we've got to find a win somewhere. You know, I work in privacy, so I'm, you know, every day is a negative day. So yeah, hey, we, we're winning on our COVID numbers right now. So uh, Good to hear. Well, so let's, uh, let's start just a little bit with backstory about you, not all the way back to your uh, childhood years, maybe, but a little bit of backstory about how you got into this game and, and we'll go from there. So... Uh, this is the point where most people normally kind of tell you how they've got a real passion for privacy and how they were born into it and how they kind of told their mom when they were five, how they wanted to work in privacy and all that kind of stuff. Uh, my backstory is I sat down with my wife about 20 years ago uh, and said, you know, what sounds cool? And I kind of looked through the job adverts and one of them was security consultant that paid 50,000 pounds a year. And I thought, that sounds really cool. I've got no idea what it is. And so I just said, hey, follow the money and um, started to work in security. And then since then, I've been working in different security companies, resellers, channel distribution, all that kind of stuff. A lot of sales, a lot of marketing, a lot of product management. And over time, that started gravitating more towards data type stuff, solutions, and it got very businessy. And in the end, I found that I was really looking for a, a quite a wide role that touched every part of the business. And in my experience, privacy really does do that. You become uh, a jack of all trades, whether you're a master of none is another thing to discuss, but you do truly have to know about marketing, business, sales, uh, accounting, everything in the business. You have to be involved and you have to actually care. So 
the actual privacy stuff is almost secondary to that. So that's why I love it. I'm a businessman at heart and that's kind of why I love privacy. That's great. So you've Can got- I say something? While I was listening, when, when you said you followed the money, you have the like most professional studio setup I've seen in any of these things. Look at this guy's microphone. Like it's unbelievable. He has a show. He has his own show. Yeah. I mean, this is like really nice. And um, I, what, what, I don't want to ask you what a setup like that costs, but I will ask, how long does a setup like that take to put together? Uh, uh, a couple of hours. Oh, okay. it's, yeah. Okay. Well, like it's, it's not technical at all. Um, a lot of people start on like USB microphones and things like that, which are great, but you, you kind of have a certain limit on quality. And then you get to like the XLR ones, which are like the more kind of broadcast quality type. Uh, and I've got a mixer here with a load of cables coming in and out of it and uh, cameras and lights and all sorts of stuff. So you both, you both have something in common. You have a, a penchant for technology in your home. Uh, Carl was telling me he has like 20 Google devices and you, you're always talking about Alexa. Alexa Before yeah. we keep going, will you tell Carl about what happened or tell the audience what happened when you were woken out of sleep by your Alexa playing? Uh, well, well, there's been a couple of these scenarios, but one of the interest, actually, I don't think I told you this story, Andy, but maybe I did. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm hanging out in my old house and uh, I don't want to say the device's name because it's right behind me, but um, the lady... Uh, just wakes me up, right? And I'm like listening and it's making a sound I've never heard. And then on the other end of the line, I hear a man and I'm like, who is this? And it's the chief privacy officer of the company I used to work for. It was Alexis, okay? And I was like, what is this? Why are you on my Amazon Echo? And we, to this day, have no idea how he ended up. Um, um, he said it called him. And I have no clue. So the only thing I can deduce is that I was talking in my sleep (laughs) and I I was cursing them out in my sleep and it caught them. This is the only thing I can think of. Um, He put down his turkey sandwich and picked up the phone. (laughs) Like, like, uh, he put down his turkey sandwich and he makes it funny. So that had, that definitely happened to me. And that was, that was an intense moment. But uh, anyway, that's my, that's my, Amazon. My new trick that I can highly recommend is when you're in the middle of a Zoom call with people, especially a large audience, just say really loudly, uh, hey, Alexa, call mom. Oh. And, and then everyone kind of la- laughs about it and ignores it. And then suddenly you'll just see someone panic. As that it literally is doing it. Did you hear her? She asked me, do you want to call mom? No. <laughs> no. Excellent. See, there's proof it works. Yeah. So guest appearance from Amazon Echo. There we Excellent. go. Uh, I love it. Well, I just thought you two would bond over that. Didn't didn't Alexa? Sorry, didn't she wake you up one time with like really loud rap music? Oh yeah, but that's happened a couple times. That that's like that's an old song now. Oh yeah, that's right. So she's waking me up with like thunderous rap music, which I love rap music as is obvious behind me. But um, one of the songs that I used to play to antagonize my friends, particularly my girlfriend, was "Ride the Lightning" by Metallica. And so like, I'd be downstairs, she'd be upstairs and I'd be like, you know, play Ride the Lightning on all devices, 10. And so every once in a while, randomly, like it must hear something that sounds like that command because Ride the Lightning just starts playing on my Amazon Echoes throughout my whole house. Um, it is a nightmare, but whatever. It's when you're writing privacy policy. 
Just exactly. I'll tell you my favorite thing about that device. And I live in a town home. I've got three levels. And so, you know, throughout the day, you turn on a bunch of lights and you do a bunch of stuff. At night, when I'm ready to go to bed, I just tell that thing good night and everything in my house turns off. And I love that. Like my door's locked, my AC goes to the temperature that I like. Like this, I leads really us, this leads us to a really good point to talk about. How do we feel about the conveniences of modern, te modern technology and the implication on all the data processing that's happening? Because clearly this device is processing a lot of data about us. The three of us are people that you know, are open to that. Like we're in the weeds in this stuff. So um, we may have a, a higher tolerance for it, but you know, how do you all feel about the data that, that the processing activities that are required to, to make this stuff go? Carl? Uh, I guess one of the first points I'd like to make is how sometimes you have to be inside something to actually recognize the risks. And one of the things that kind of disturbs me somewhat in the privacy community is there, there is a kind of view of like, hey, that thing is bad and I will stay completely away from it. Even people that work in tech. And I'm kind of more of the view of like, well, how can you really know what's going on? I mean, the cases we just talked about with, let's say, uh, Google or Amazon, um, you know, you might read the rhetoric from those vendors and say, hey, those kind of issues never happen and stuff. Well, hey, they do. And you know about what the exact issues you're going to face are, whether it be privacy or not from actually experiencing them and working with them and having them in your house. And you can start to make those risk-based calls, those judgments, because you can ex look at the utility of them. You can have lived with them and again, yeah, I actually value that. I recognize the benefits versus the costs. And I think it can be a little bit too simple to say X vendor is bad, X product is bad, and I will never touch it. Carl, let me ask you something about, let me probe that further. One of the interesting cases, and I don't have the facts in front of me, but it came to mind when Andy raised the question, is the Amazon Echo as a witness in a, essentially what is a murder case. Um, uh, now, I'm oversimplifying it, but, you know, using some of the recordings from the device to try to figure out, you know, basically as evidence of, of a crime. Uh, open question. What are your thoughts on that as a, you know, obviously public good and like what maybe what are some of the potential privacy pitfalls to starting to think about these devices um, as, as evidentiary tools? I don't know if that's the right word. Yeah. I, and I guess you can, you can talk about like the thin end, end of the wedge and slippery slope and all these kind of arguments about how, if you let these things into the world, let them into your life, then eventually they will turn into a really bad situation. Um, uh, facial recognition is a perfect example of that, where people can say, especially in the US, where there's a movement now to literally just ban it everywhere and kind of say that the technology never existed and let's, then that somehow is going to fix the problem. Um, slightly tangentially, just to focus on that for a second, I kind of have issue with the concept that it's the tech that's the problem. Because for me, tech is kind of benign, whether it's facial recognition or someone listening in your, your home all the time, it's how it's used. And so that's why I kind of fear the idea that we can just get a piece of tech, whether it be facial recognition or anything else, and just say, ban it, and hoping that'll go away. So back to kind of listening devices in your home, um, I guess ultimately it comes back to trade-off for you, but I don't really see that 
I don't really see there's any option or any other way around it than to have a pervasive privacy law that kind of covers these scenarios. Uh, something like the GDPR, for instance, kind of covers all those different uses nice and elegantly, whether it's based on a lawful basis of like uh, legitimate interest or uh, something to do with like public good. Where it gets really kind of messy, and let's say the US example, is where we have all these different kind of sectoral and product-based and technology-based and state-based laws, which make it really hard to kind of work out, is this really actually covered? At least in the EU or even personally in the UK right now, I know that there is no legitimate interest for Amazon to listen to my recordings. So I'm kind of covered. If it's absolutely in the public good, then they will. And so I should be happy with that as well. Do we think holistically that the GDPR is a good law? It's been successful. Um, I, I get your point about it does establish a floor, you know, for everybody to operate with. And I haven't brought up the theme of the, the, the episode yet, but behind me, you can see the Star Wars background and the, and the theme, the 80s theme for it is the Empire Strikes Back. And one of my favorite lines is like Princess Leia saying to, about the Millennium Falcon, should I get out and push? And I think that's one of the, the important issues on this point about the GDPR, when you look at it holistically um, and the effectiveness and where we are today with enforcement of the GDPR, it's an interesting conversation. So I wanna get into it with you guys to understand like, do we think it's good? What, what should we be doing um, as practitioners to, to push it along, to push it forward, or what should uh, the regulators or other parties be doing um, to either make improvements or changes? And we can get into the US later too, but. Um. Oh, please. So one of the things I love about the GDPR, one of the things I, I talk about a lot when I'm doing kind of awareness training on it is that it's a principle-based uh, law effectively in that there's really kind of seven principles, like six that are called out, plus this kind of accountability principle. And the idea really of the principles is that they're the kind of catch all, that if you can find any loophole based somewhere else in the whole of the 99 articles of the regulation, then, hey, it's still gonna be caught out by, is it, is it fair? Well, no. Okay, well, you've just broken the fairness principle, so we've caught you out. So there aren't really any loopholes of the GDPR kind of by design. There were some carve outs specifically related to like each country's derogations or their ability to kind of override stuff. Or a big one that not many people talk about is law enforcement that's not part of it. That's part of like a whole separate thing of laws. But fundamentally, it's meant to be a kind of framework, like a building block for you to kind of live by. It's a human rights based approach rather than let's just pick out little parts of your life and apply a rule to them, whether it be facial recognition law or uh, an email, a specific email marketing law. It's meant to be something pervasive. I've got, but let me, let me ask you this. Um, so I don't know if loophole is the right term, but let's talk about cross-border data transfers and the European approach, right? So I've been pretty critical of uh, some of the, uh, discussion in both Shrem's decisions, but what 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 I'll what I'll what I'll ask you is this: Is it hypocritical uh, to make demands of of you know the United States or other other countries trying to uh, be able to receive EU personal data when the countries of the EU themselves conduct 
many of the sweeping surveillance activities, for example, um, that the two invalidated cross-border data transfer mechanisms, privacy shield uh, uh, and whatever, um, uh, and safe harbor uh, uh, seem to be ha have been inadequate. Like, let me ask it very simply. Is it hypocritical to not allow the United States to receive EU data when we know EU nation states um, do the same stuff and in a lot of ways worse that they're being that the US is being criticized for in the both strange decisions? Yes, it is hypocritical. Okay, <laughs> yeah, Thank you. That makes me happy. <laughs> yeah. I'm kind of known for just giving yes, no answers. And that is definitely a yes one. That I'm happily not sit on the fence about. Um, yeah, I completely agree with that uh, logic. And there's a few places where you see similar kind of things. So one of them is uh, Article 27 of the GDPR, which says that if you're kind of operating anywhere near the EU or have like users there, consumers there, then you have to have a representative there. Um, so you now we flip that round and say, hey, if you've got any users in the US, hey, you've now got to a point, either a US legal entity or have a US establishment there. Imagine how that would go down. But the EU has decided, well, the only way to enforce it is to have that. So a lot of the things you could take the view, uh, and many do, that it's very much about protectionism, that it's about um, trying to help these supposed struggling EU tech companies compete. Now, if you know of any of these EU tech companies, and I'd love to meet them, but uh, I'm not seeing any of these that are just hitting that glass ceiling that are being beaten by these awful people of Salesforce and, uh, uh, you know, and um, Microsoft and Google, you know, I don't know who the EU Google is. I don't know who the, the, the French Salesforce is that I'd even consider, you know, that that's just not how it works. And the other thing that I get involved in quite a lot is uh, because one of the clients I work with uh, who I'm the DPA for handles sports data globally. And there's this kind of concept in uh, some EU privacy people's minds that data is just this package. It's just this zip file or a Word document that lives somewhere. It can sit in an EU data center or an American data center. Well, what happens when that data isn't a file? it's more of a collection or a collection of processes of dynamic movement of data that includes data of different people from different locations. Where does that sit? You know, are we saying that because it's got a bit of EU data, every other person in the world data must sit in the EU as well. Well, how's that going to work for US organizations that are just in the US? What happens when a US national football team plays the UK, uh, like, the, like the English football team, and that's a, a video of that football match. Where's that supposed to live? So I think we need to remember that the internet is literally the internet. It's meant to be an international thing and trying to limit it to geographic borders is a little bit too simple for my liking. And there's a big, there's a big difference and we're seeing this play out with Shrems, right? There's just a big difference between what the law says and behaviors. And, and it's, Carl, you and I talked about this once, you know, where, where uh, rules are made and interpretation is then, is then set by the players. Um, and so we're, we're seeing that, certainly we're seeing that with data transfers, like you're, with, business keeps going. Um, we saw that with the GDPR in some sense with the lack of clarity around uh, cookies and ad tech and some of those things. And people kept doing business, they modified things and they did things differently, but business goes on. I learned this, you know, really, really 
early on in my legal career that regardless of a contract or what anything says, but people just keep, people keep doing business. Uh, if there's enough money, if there's enough market power, um, and to your point, the, the, the GDPR and other, other re related uh, laws are, are much more easily handled by the large global platforms. Like they can absorb all that compliance risk and they have massive teams um, to support it. So it doesn't really, in that sense, it, I don't think it really does, you know, what, what it may, what may have been one of the things it was setting out to do in terms of protectionism. I don't think that's necessarily been the case. It's got a lot of other things that it's doing um, that are helpful. But. Yeah, and I'll say one thing, I'll say, I'll add one thing, like, uh, and I, by the way, I agree with Carl's comments, but like this mythology that exists in the privacy profession that is perpetuated by EU policymakers, in my opinion, uh, that like American technology companies are being held hostage by the American intelligence community and the, the you know, the, the, the deep state in Washington, D.C. to collect all of this data and like, like, you know, Google is a massive surveillance conspiracy. Like, there's no basis for any of that. I, there, there really isn't. In fact, American technology companies are the ones going around the world challenging all of these government requests for information. Like, I mean, Microsoft is a great example of that. I mean, we've seen it in other contexts, Apple as well, of course. Um, and so I don't know why this myth persists, but I can speculate. And I think a lot of it is about looking at it from my very kind of Amerocentric point of view here. Uh, I just think it's uh, EU policymakers, particularly privacy policymakers, trying to create global standards based on European uh, preferences. Uh, there's no other way to explain it. Um, it bugs me. It bugs me because so much money has to get invested into, for example, remediation after the invalidation of Privacy Shield. But we forget how much money and resources and work went into uh, uh, setting your company up to comply with Privacy Shield. The same thing goes for Safe Harbor. The same thing goes with the current kind of confusion around the SCCs and and this the guidance and the most recent the the, the Schrems two decision around those. Um, Make no mistake. Make no mistake, though. Our approach is not better in the United States. How about better or worse? Better. I, I, yeah, I don't think our approach is better. But I think the idea that you know, America, Silicon Valley is an operative for the American intelligence community is not true. Would it help, <laughs> would it help Carl, in your mind, if the United States were able to pass a comprehensive federal data protection law? Would it help, or would it make things messier? I don't really see how it's going to help. Uh, personally, I'm really pessimistic about the whole future of uh, federal law for the U.S. Um, <laughs> I <th> and so are we. <laughs> I'll, I'll bet. I'll bet. Um, I can I guess you have to kind of look at the success of the GDP. I mean, success is probably debatable, but you could say, well, isn't GDPR great because it's pervasive? There's no other rules, no other laws that it kind of conflicts with. It's the law, and there's no others. Great, nice, and simple. Which is a bit like saying, hey, this startup with its one piece of new uh, microservice-based tech is really innovating, whereas look at that monolithic IBM over there really struggling to rebuild their system. Well, it's the same kind of model. You know, the GDPR is a slight tweak of the previous you know, 
data protection uh, directive that was there. So it's not really anything that new. And that took many, many years to build. So it's really a very, very old law that's based off a group of people that got together after the Second World War, World War to kind of not be friends and stop World War III happening. So this is a very old thing. You know, it's about 70 years old, really, in many respects. And it's kind of apolitical. It's uh, outside of those kind of four-year election cycles, anything like that. So there's no real influence on it like there is in the U.S., whereas the U.S. has got hundreds of little privacy laws all over the place. And so if someone comes along and says, hey, I'm Biden or Trump or whatever, whoever is going to be there in uh, next year and says, okay, we're now going to do this federal law. Well, what's it going to be? Is it going to say, here's the current law and we're just going to in one state and spread it across all 50? Is it going to say, okay, well, let's start wiping out some of the little tiny laws. Is it going to kill off CCPA or CPRA, whatever it might be? The problem with the US is you've still got so many laws that are going to probably override it, whether it be FERPA, CAN-SPAM, all these different things. Uh, HIPAA, I mean, I could talk about them all day long, but I don't see how they can still coincide and live alongside a federal law. I mean, people say to me, well, the federal law is going to be great for the simple reason that it has a blanket law for all states. Well, that's fine for us privacy people from a compliance perspective. Hey, we've got one thing rather than 50 versions, but we've still got everything else. And the big point I want to make is just because you've got a federal law, it doesn't mean it's a good law. Now look at CPRA. Um, that looks like it's going to pass. However, a lot of privacy people absolutely hate it. So for, for many reasons. So just because something's new and going to be adopted, it doesn't necessarily mean it's any good. Well, I can tell you without a doubt that uh, I am not a huge fan of CPRA and how it works. But what's interesting to me is that essentially uh, an activist is driving law in California. I mean, that it's not like it's this legislative process, you know, representative of the will of the people. I mean, people like CPA never actually went to a vote, right? Like it was enacted by the legis well a version of ccpa was enacted by the legislator because of the pressure that it would go to a vote right and uh it looks like ccpra will make it to the referendum vote um but really all it does is uh modify ccpa in the ways that the original activist sees fit i mean it's one citizen uh driving policy in a state with 40 some odd million people um it's just a wacky way to govern in this space. I agree with you. I, I don't know that there's a future for a cohesive federal privacy approach in the United States. And there, it's not, I think, to, just to use like American jargon, like there's no silver bullet, right? Like there's no way, unless you just preempt and override the entire privacy infrastructure in the United States, uh, regulatory infrastructure in the United States to create this kind of GDPR approach. With that, but, you know, but we can critique the American sectoral approach in some ways, but there's some good, I mean, HIPAA is a pretty good privacy law, I think, uh, uh, you know, uh, and it works well to protect patients and their privacy. Uh, uh, so it's easy to be critical of the mess that the United States is, but there's a lot that can be learned from some of the laws on the books, especially at the state level, I think. I don't know, Andy, do you have, what do you think? I mean, you're like more in tune with like some of the state stuff than I am, but I feel like 
it's a goofy approach, like going state by state or sectoral. Um, but some of the states, some of the laws have some interesting components to them that I think like, I think of in Illinois and their, uh, what, what's the name of the? Uh, biometric law, yeah. Biometric law, yeah. I think, um, I think it's, it's awfully complicated and, and awfully difficult for us to think through a way in which one thing, you know, fixes things. And I think the, the constant overriding problem is political, um, mm -hmm. is that this will never be, it will never be a priority. And I think that's, that's one of the, the inherent challenges. Set aside what the laws say or what they do or the fact that HIPAA maybe has been more successful over time and uh, other things. I went to um, an ad tech conference many years ago when I first started out and there was a panel of congressional staffers on the sitting there and somebody asked a question again about federal law. This is like eight years ago at this point. Somebody asked this question and somebody said, you know, no, it's never going to happen. There's no appetite for it. Like my constituents, the constituents don't have the appetite for it. And I think the problem is we've got an election. We've got parties that do agree on nothing. I mean, literally nothing. There is no topic they agree on. They're not going to get to an agreement on this because the, the undercurrent will always be that the FTC or whoever the enforcer is going to be of this needs to have more enforcement power and, and more, uh, more ability to regulate and enforce. And this is an issue we've seen with the GDPR in terms of funding and, and, and you know, enforcement capabilities. And so like, I just think it's, it's too big of a pretzel at the moment for anything to really solve the problem. So I think what we're going to end up with is if we do end up with something, it will be something that's based on the CCPA and the GDPR and some kind of um, mishmash of those two things with some basic concepts. And it always leads me back to Pedro, a point you make all the time, which, which we can discuss now, which is are our consumers privacy rights better. Yeah. If we get something like that, how does the consumer feel better about it? Maybe they do. Maybe they do. Maybe they do a little bit. Maybe they have expansion of their rights, awareness of their ability to go ask a company to do something, to delete data or to show me the data you have about me or correct something. You know, consumers are often, you know, often interested in fixing something as opposed to necessarily saying just wipe all my data out of Google because that would impact going back to our earlier point, impact my ability to do a bunch of things I want to do with my technology. Uh, but really it's more like, I don't, I don't like bikes. I like basketball, <laughs> you know? And so uh, I think, I think that's where we're going to end up. We're going to end up with something um, and, and with questionable value to consumers, maybe. I think that the huge, like, I know we're picking on the Europeans a little bit, but like articulating a legitimate interest legal basis does not protect anyone's privacy in my opinion. It's not protective of privacy. All it does is create a channel for a company or an organization to use data however, however it feels that it has this legitimate interest in doing so. Um, and so like that's one of my critiques of GDPR um, and some of these kind of legitimate interest or can you articulate a, a, a lawful basis for processing. How does that protect anyone? I mean it creates some transparency. I, I get that. But as the individual on the ground, you know, 
if a company articulates a legitimate interest legal basis to use my data in a certain way, and I don't go read their privacy policy, I'm not in, informed at all about what's it's a good question. It's a good question, Carl. Like, so when you're advising a company about potentially a legitimate interest balancing or some, some actual documentation they may need to do, how do you advise the business practically about that? Like, this is the value you're going to get from this and put yourself in the consumer's shoes and this is what they're getting. Yeah, I mean, I'm always going to be trying to push them in a more pro-privacy, pro-fairness kind of approach, but clearly they'll always be going in a more pro-business uh, route. So some of the kind of, and a lot of time I'll be talking to marketing people in this kind of regard, and I'll try and keep it as simple as possible and with them. And some of the kind of things I'll be saying to them are principles of no surprises and would the would the consumer raise an eyebrow about this? Would a parent of a child be surprised we're doing this? Um, the, the classic scenario is you sat down with uh, the head of the regulator uh, and the consumer around a table and you have to explain what you do. Would either of them be surprised or would either of them go, that's a bit, that, that feels a bit weird. If you've got that, if it does feel a bit weird to them and it would raise an eyebrow, then you're probably, got, you're probably falling outside of that legitimate interest balancing test. So we can document a lot of this stuff very heavily, but ultimately, kind of, does it make sense? Now, the big flaw that I sort of follow on from Pedro's argument about legitimate interest is that whilst I really like it because it's, it's kind of the obvious fair thing, and I'll talk more about that in a minute with an example about Starbucks, is that the... GDPR doesn't require you to document your legitimate interests, uh, your legitimate interest assessments and publish them online. It requires you to have accountability and to document them internally, but not publicly. I believe that if it's said uh, you are required to publish your legitimate interest assessments online, let's say in your privacy policy, that would make things drastically different. It could really revolutionize the GDPR. It could really make things a lot better. And I think that would make people a lot more, um, uh, give people those, back those rights. Um, just, just to backtrack a little bit, I wanted to talk about a Starbucks example. People say, well, what actually is legitimate interest and why is it really fair? Well, most of the time, it's the kind of the obvious stuff. Like I walk in Starbucks and they say, hey, what's your name? You know, I'm not consenting to that. I'm just saying, well, I want to get the right coffee and they want to give the coffee to the right person. So there is a legitimate interest there that's fair. We don't need to document it. We don't need to talk about it too much. It's just there and done. So that's the kind of business to day-to-day -day business stuff that uses legitimate interest that is just does make sense. But sadly, people do push it too far. And that's why I think, uh, just to round off my point, that we should have to document that publicly. And you, know, you said something really, you explained something really well that I tried to ask and I asked really poorly. And you hit the spirit of my question without me asking it clearly, which was how does me saying in a privacy policy, well, we use legitimate interest for these types of data sets in any way inform the consumer of anything other than to tell them that we've done some analysis that they don't have access to um, that we think is enough. Right, like, I don't understand how that drives any privacy. It sounds like you don't either, and you think it could have been better if they had to articulate the legitimate interest analysis. Yeah, it's it's an appalling it's an appalling name because you've got our legitimate interests, you've got interests which are legitimate, 
you've got a legitimate interest, you've got the lawful basis of legitimate interest, and all these kind of things don't really make any sense to anyone, especially privacy people. So, you know, I mean, at least the at least the GDPR has got a really rock solid definition of consent, uh, something that the US things could benefit from. But yeah, legitimate interest could do with a lot of work, I'm sure. In law school, there's this this standard reasonable person. What would a reasonable person do under the circumstances? And we always laugh at it. You know, it's just so ridiculous, but it, it's related, right? <laughs> it's related, and it's almost better than legitimate interest in some sense because it's 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 articulating a similar concept, uh, but it still it still leaves a lot to be desired and a lot to be open, uh, for sure. Yeah, one of the things I really don't like about that kind of thing, or like the words appropriate or adequate or whatever, is it starts pushing privacy into very much a legal domain of what is a defensible position, rather than the it technically where it kind of should be, not a compliance thing, just in a complete fairness thing of like actual privacy, where it's like, we'll do the right thing, what kind of makes sense to the consumer, um, which kind of makes sense as to why the eu privacy people are often not lawyers and the us they almost always are there's some other reasons for that too (laughs) i think it's cultural uh, for sure so what maybe the last topic to end on um why do you think that is i mean i think does it does it just go back to fundamental fundamental rights fundamental privacy rights and additional different differing sort of viewpoints, historical, you know, for, for people in Europe versus the United States? Uh, I think there's various reasons, really. I think the, the U.S. is very, very litigious. Uh, so it's very much about defensible positions. Um, it's also incredibly pro-business. So you add that with the defensible side, and it's very much a case of how can we let the business thrive and keep ourselves uh, away from too much flag? So uh, privacy will fall into that compliance thing. Many of the laws, sorry, many of the many of the laws are aligned to that as well. They're not rights based, and uh, there, from what I'm aware, there isn't really a right to privacy in the U.S. in the same way there is in other countries like uh, EU ones. So, you know, the, our rights are kind of different to yours uh, from the EU to U.S. perspective. So, I think that's probably why you see more true activism from the eu side like more even amongst members of parliament or whatever rather than the ones in the us what do you think pedro i think it's it's less about like how we think about privacy as a fundamental right versus a derived right which i don't think there's a big difference there like once our judicial system interpreted privacy into the constitution i think it's there right unless we interpret it out so i think this again there's a little bit of I don't want to say confusion, but uh, this misleading rhetoric about um, how Americans think about privacy. I think we are more aligned with the Europeans than we think we are, um, regardless of how like privacy is articulated in like our foundational legal structure. With all that said, there is a big difference between the Europeans and the United and, and the United States with respect to how we think about information as a commodity right like in the u.s we've decided that information is a marketable product right and that like we sort of created that uh here in the u.s i mean facebook google are good examples of the obvious leaders in 
the you know the, the, the monetization and commoditization of information I think Europe actually fell behind on that right As for the to the point that Carl made like name me the European Google or Facebook it doesn't exist right um, and so I think that is where we have the stark difference um, in the United States we think that you know, or we tend to think of data as this very much marketable commoditized resource that can be tapped for wealth and, and income. Um, Europe has some pretty big limits on how they think of that, right? In fact, like there is, I don't, I'm not a GDPR expert, but I know that in one of the articles there's some language about the limits to what you can contract away as far as your privacy, right? And that shows a fundamental difference between the US and Europe right there. I can contract away my privacy in the US until I have none, right? I mean, you know, and I, I just don't think in Europe that's possible. And I think that has to do more with how we think about information as a resource for economic growth versus how we think differently about privacy. I don't know, that's my take. It'd be really interesting to see how it plays out for sure. I know I'm gonna, uh going to use a SHA-1 hash on my name at Starbucks now uh, after this conversation. I'm going to come up with a de-identified... Uh, but uh, it's still personal data, data on CCPA, even if it's a pseudonym, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, and I'm making it available to them. And you're making it available, right? You, you'd, so, you'd, you'd be amazed how difficult it is to, pr to pronounce my name in the US. I, it took me almost two minutes once uh, in a, I think it was at McDonald's, trying to get them to understand my name. And in the end, I had to pronounce it. I think it was Carl. <laughs> oh, Carl. Oh, God. I, they, could, they couldn't get it. They thought it was Kyle or whatever. So, yeah. Well, you probably were better off not eating at McDonald's, I guess. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Thanks, thanks, thanks for joining us, Carl. Uh, Carl, really appreciate it. Carl, like uh, <laughs> the walking dead, you know? Like, uh, <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot, Carl. Thanks, man. Thank you. All right.